When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and producer Genevieve Kosky. This week we're talking about George Lucas's Star Wars, the 1977 film later retitled A New Hope, and J.J. Abrams' new reboot, remake, what have you, whatever you want to call it, Return to the Franchise, The Force Awakens. As a heads up, by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be coming up on the film having been in theaters for a month, so all spoilers are on the table and we aren't going to be coy about some of the big ones if they happen to come up. So consider yourself warned, if you're averse to spoilers and you haven't seen The Force Awakens, tune out now. One reason it's hard to avoid talking about spoilers with The Force Awakens, anyone who's seen A New Hope will recognize it in Abrams' film, which essentially throws every character element and story beat from the original into a bag, gives it a good shake, and dumps it on the table in a new configuration. As with A New Hope, which is how we'll be referring to the first Star Wars for this part of the discussion, just for clarity, The Force Awakens features a lonely desert planet, a hayseed who wants to escape it, a fascist organization manned by white-armored stormtroopers and dominated by a masked and caped black-clad villain, a ragtag resistance fighting against it, a planet-sized world-smashing weapon, a cute robot smuggling vital information of the rebels, and so forth and so on. It's kind of the same movie as Star Wars A New Hope, except it's been modernized in a lot of ways, from the diversity of the cast to the slickness of the narrative. And since so many of these beats are familiar, we want to be able to discuss every aspect of the story. So seriously, guys, spoiler alert. Nothing will stand in our way. I will finish what you started. There are stories about what happened. All right. So before we get into forum topics, guys, what did you guys think of The Force Awakens? And I think the word Scott first threw out when we talked about it. It's, it's a conservative film. It doesn't, you know, it, it does not, it does not take a lot of risks in terms of uh, breaking from the Star Wars formula. Uh, it's a formula that works. And also, I found the new variations um, instantly winning. I, I, I like these new characters. Uh, I like their relationships that, that that are forming between them. I mean, it just there's a lot of smart choices made in this, and and I I enjoyed it. Plus BB-8. Very, very, very winning robot. You got your little BB-8 impression on there, Genevieve. Yeah, it's it's a lot like Beaker from the Muppets, though. <laughs> it sounded a little bit like uh, Curly from the Three Stooges, too. It's all the same. Thing. Really, to me, it's it's just R two D two. It's like uh, it's like Snarfer in the Thundercats. It's just but like, if it's R two D two, you have to do that. Squeakier version. 
All right. Let the record show that Genevieve is sort of sticking her arms out from her sides like a penguin and rocking back and forth to represent uh, what R2-D2 does when he gets excited. That does not play on a podcast. But seriously, what did you think of Force Awakens? You know, I, I think I've established I'm probably the least like Star Wars focused of anyone at this table. But, you know, I got swept up in the, the cultural excitement surrounding this movie and the excitement of my boyfriend, who's a big Star Wars fan. And that was infectious. And it definitely colored my my first viewing of the film, this sort of secondhand nostalgia feelings I've developed. And, and I think the movie is definitely built to evoke that sense, even in people who aren't, you know, Star Wars diehards, as, as we've seen from the box office numbers. These aren't just the Star Wars diehards that are going to see this movie. And you know, as a personal anecdote, I went to go see it with my family and had to give my mom and aunt a crash course in all the Star Wars mythology up to this point. Like they remembered nothing and they came out of the film like we do numbers ratings in my family. Uh, when we walk out of a film and they all they both gave it nines, which were the two huh. highest ratings. So I think it's definitely kind of built to bring everyone into the Star Wars fandom fold. But I saw it a second time and, you know, it did feel a lot thinner on that second viewing. Still a lot of fun, still built really well. It goes, it's fun. All the characters are still great. But, you know, the narrative is a little silly. It's very broad, you know, a lot like the first one. But then there are these specific references and callbacks sprinkled on top. But there's not a whole lot of kind of meat to the story or the characters at this point in the saga. I have some specific issues with the narrative or a couple moments in the ending. But in general, I really enjoyed it even the second time. I find it interesting that you found it thinner the second time. I think for me, it actually played better the second time because the first time I was so distracted by how much of it is beat for beat, A New Hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so much attention was paid to spoilers on this movie. Like, don't don't spoil anything about this movie for me. And the culture almost came together to, to try to avoid spoilers. I felt like the movie spoiled itself because beat after beat, it would things would happen. I was, I'd be like, oh, I know where this is going because well, I've seen it before. I guess what I mean is the, the second time around, it became more apparent that the thing that is driving this story is like this sliver of a map that they're chasing all over the galaxy and uh, I don't want to call it a MacGuffin because it does have consequence but it is kind of thin gruel as far as a driving narrative force and a reason to blow up planets and that just became a lot more apparent to me in the second viewing. I I know what you mean about MacGuffin and for the life of me I, I can't figure out why they spent the whole film chasing a guy who who basically said, look, I wanna I wanna go away. I'm yeah. I'm I'm voluntarily removing myself from the story. And they're like, if we can just figure out where he voluntarily removed himself from the story to they have ninety percent of a treasure map and they just need like the one corner that fits into it. And and that's what they're they're going after. And R2 D2 had the other ninety percent the whole time and wakes up at exactly the right point to, yeah, that to give part, it to them. That part was very thin. But mostly I, my point is I went in trying to keep my expectations low and I was pleasantly surprised, but I was also like a little annoyed at seeing the same things over and over. On a second viewing for me, it became more about the experience that it was and less about anticipation and expectation. Scott, what did you think? Well, uh, for one, I, I want to have a question for Genevieve. Oh, no, he's pointing a finger I, accusatorily I, at me. <laughs> 
when you say you have a problem with are you talking about the very end of the film you did not like the very end of the film yeah i i, I wish it had ended maybe 90 seconds earlier we've warned everybody out the wazoo like spell it out what are we talking about i wish we had never seen luke like I, oh my god I, I understand i understand the need for viewers to actually see luke after this big quest to find him but i honestly think the thing just kind of takes a nosedive after the moment they go into warp speed you know that moment when you know the the stars go all streaky that's the moment i'd like to see the directed by credit come up and hear the score not after you know 90 seconds of luke and ray sort of staring at each other on a mountaintop followed by a overhead helicopter shot you know it just sort of left the film on this note of fan service you know this like ooh, she's giving him the lightsaber instead of rather like this is where the story ends this is where the emotional beat is i i did not like the whole luke thing at although all. if it had if it had ended with them like flying off and you know they're they're just gonna go find him and, and get him sometime in the next film it would have felt like a very deliberate echo of the end of mm-hmm. empire right and i mean i like i i guess i could see how the empire Empire wouldn't have been improved by another 90 seconds where they land in Java's palace and sneak in and like find Han Solo propped up against a wall and stare at him meaningfully and then we get a cut. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like I, I'm not sure I th- think that they should have echoed that earlier film. I mean, I don't think they should have done it because it echoes it. I just think that I think they should have ended it there because I don't think it gains anything from showing Luke. And that, again, I am saying that as someone who is not a you know, huge Star Wars fan. And I wasn't like, oh, I can't wait to see Luke. You know, that that's not what I was anticipating throughout this movie. But. I don't know. I think any movie that opens with everyone's looking for Luke Skywalker probably needs to pay off. With, but, finding Luke Skywalker, but they have but, the means to find him. And I think if you're setting sure. this up as the first of three movies, it's more exciting to leave it on. And now they're going to get him rather than ending it on they found him and now what hey. also why is he just standing on the top of a mountain don't you have something to do luke he's, i don't know he's, he's doing jedi <laughs> contemplation stuff it's very important also do through the force he sensed her coming so he went to the most nonchalant place to be discovered uh, i, I want to hear the like the the full extent of, of scott's like there, consternation there really is it's just so powerful i can't believe that it didn't that it didn't get to you i just nah, i mean luke. just her, her going her making that journey and there he is and Jimmy here's this here's this here's this guy that you know this is the hero of the first film and he's you know he's changed i mean it's been 38 years since since we first encountered hasn't been for me oh <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that is a that is a sick burn um it's <laughs> a really sick bird I, I don't but, but, but i just oh boy that that moment just got to me and the and the other moment that got to me too in the film was the uh push-in on Han Solo, just a very simple camera move. It's a small thing, but but it, but it got to me, and it's something I remembered because I didn't have it. I haven't seen it twice. I actually I actually want before I give my impression, I kind of want to get Keith's impression of the second viewing experience because yeah, uh, you, you all sort of different. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I, I it actually improved for me on second viewing because I, I felt a sort of a sense of relief. It's like oh, I know I already know I like this movie, so now I can maybe enjoy this movie a little mm-hmm. bit more. Uh, and I saw it in you know IMAX with my 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 four year old next to me. You know, I was when I saw this movie it's kind of a special experience for me it was nice it's nice and then we went and bought went to Build-A-Bear and, and got a <laughs> got a stuffed Chewbacca and a stuffed Darth Vader bear which is the cutest most menacing thing you'll ever see oh, I think it's going to kill the Chewbacca bear you so you had to, you had to build, they fight a lot did you, you have to build the thing yourself you really actually just stuff the 
what, what was the wish that you put in the in the uh, they, Vader bear? They had a long they had a long uh, line. So we I don't think they went through the whole elaborate wish. Uh, uh, you know, this is you know we've done it before. They did not do the whole elaborate. This is your wish. You put it in the heart and put it inside. All that stuff was not. Oh, I didn't out. know about the wish part, but I like I I sort of picture you like for the Darth Vader like getting a, a little black crottled tiny <laughs> melted looking heart to stick in there. Oh. Chewbacca gets one that's like three sizes. Ah, <laughs> oh, Bill. This segment sponsored by Build a Bear. <laughs> um, so uh, as far as my impression, uh, my impression I think was uh, the same as yours on first viewing, Tasha. So maybe the second will it will come to life for me because I did actually was I found the film tremendously satisfying. Uh, but then, uh, as the as the I guess couple of weeks now have have, have gone on, I, I've it's faded for me a bit. And the echoes of the first film, I mean, the conservatism of the film, which is something I'm going to bring up in my topic, it bugged me a little bit, and it did feel like a piece of fan fiction. Where I think you could say all of the Star Wars movies are so much a force of vision by one man, by George Lucas. You you really couldn't say that about a Force Awakens. I don't know what a J.J. Abrams film looks like. I never have. <laughs> And so to see this, it almost feels like, you know, we talked about whether it's, is it a sequel or is it a reboot? It almost feels like, like it's, it's a repair shop of a movie. It's, it's like, it's like, it's taken this broken down, you know, series that everyone likes and just kind of fixed it, you know, make it, made it shine again. I mean, like, I think that happens uh, to, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2 and and A New Hope, doesn't it? They get all, they get nice and and polished and, and and it it sets the course for something better to come because the the new characters are are terrific. Um, So maybe we'll have wonderful adventures with them, but it just feels like kind of going to the mechanic with uh, with this thing. Well, you know, honestly, that, that's why that last shot bugs me because I like I like the way it's shot. I get a thrill out of seeing Mark Hamill again. I feel like there's a completion to the story in Ray finding him. Like I I feel like it needs to be there for all of these reasons, but at the same time for me like I don't like the direction that that story is going. She's she's the new character. She's the new face. She's the future, and she's like brought this piece of Star Wars Arcana back to the past, and she's handing it back to the past and saying, you know, take over. Yeah, I'm the future of the Jedi, but that's not important. You, the past of the Jedi, should take over from me. And just like symbolically, it bugged me. But mm. that's kind of the way Jedi—they always have like a mentor, right? Also, yeah, I didn't I didn't interpret that as uh, look, okay. I have your lightsaber train me so much as hey dude come back we need you maybe also mark hamill doesn't have to act in this film <laughs> you gotta you gotta give him a little bit of credit for that uh, you, you shared a very fine review by eric hines in reverse shot I did. Uh, w- w- uh earlier on twitter today and, and it, where he kind of goes into how you know it isn't the vision of one person it is very much a it has a lot of corporate needs it needs to meet it needs to satisfy a lot of you know very large corporations putting it out and all the expectations they have writing it and any sort of artistry comes after that and I agree with that but I also think there is a, quite a lot of artistry that comes into it after that and and, and uh, it is definitely checking some necessary boxes and correcting the course of, of a series that might have gone uh, astray might might open to debate right and <laughs> but uh, it is actually open to debate I, I feel the weary necessity of pointing out that for a generation of people that grew up in the prequels I'm constantly told that there is a generation of people who love the prequels and that like old fogies like three of us at this table <laughs> who who did actually see the original trilogy like and grow up with them just have a very different relationship it's very hard for me to relate to people who grew up in the same way on the prequels and love them but I feel like you you have to acknowledge that they exist. 
are they out there? Anyway. I feel strongly um, <laughs> about it. I feel strongly about it. That's they a, exist. Yeah. Well, anyway. But I, I do feel like once those, once all those needs have been met, it's still a really satisfying film. I was I, I liked I liked it. No, I mean I I had a, felt great to see the film. Like it's just it's a, again my in my head I was kind of doubting it at, um, in the days that followed. I I mean I really loved this film. I think pretty much up until the time they started up with a new Death Star. And I feel like that's because it's it's instead of being the second time around for so many of these elements, it's the third time around for the <laughs> yeah. Death Star. And I'm just like, seriously, you couldn't come up with something else to blow up. For me, that was the point where respecting the past it became echoing the past became almost mindlessly repeating the past. That was the, the new Death Star was kind of the bridge too far for me. But so many elements of this film, I just thought were so fun and so exciting. And I'm really looking forward to the next film. Well, let's get into topics. Uh, Genevieve, you want to kick us off? We've already talked a lot about the new characters in uh, The Force Awakens and how kind of integral they are to how good it is. Um, but we've also talked a lot about how much The Force Awakens retreads the first, definitely a new hope and elements of Empire 2. But, you know, I want to give screenwriters Abrams, Lawrence Kasdan, and Michael Arndt their, their fair shake because they needed to navigate this really tricky kind of sequel slash reboot divide with their script, where they had to lay the groundwork for something new while maintaining strong loyalty to the original series. And, you know, they could have just gone the Star Wars babies route, sort of repeating the major characters of the original trilogy, only smaller and cuter. But they took, as you said in your intro, Tasha, kind of a blended approach, where all the old characters are in the film, and the new characters are sort of calling to them in different ways. You know, Rey obviously has a connection to Luke, but she's not just a Luke retread. She's got a good bit of Han in her, which the film acknowledges in their interactions. And Finn has a lot of Luke's naivete and sort of essential good nature, but the beginning, at least, his desire to sort of get out of harm's way and not join the fray is also pretty Han Solo-ish. And, you know, Poe is the hotshot pilot, which he obviously shares with Han, but he's much kind of more in the Princess Leia role of the knowledgeable ally. There, he's their connection to the Resistance, and I think it's safe to say there's a lot more going on with Kylo Ren than just Darth Vader 2.0, even if that's ironically what Kylo Ren is striving to be. So I guess my point here is that while all these new characters call to the original trilogy characters in specific ways, they are all new characters with different functions than Luke, Leia, and Han and I think that sets this new trilogy up to go interesting places down the line, but also does something the prequel trilogies couldn't manage, at least in my opinion, and I think your guys' opinion, which is create a sort of next generation cast of characters that doesn't pale in comparison to the originals. So my question to you guys is, do you find these new main characters as appealing as the originals? And how much do you attribute that to casting and performance versus the actual conception of the characters? I mean, I find Ray more appealing than Luke by oh, yeah. by a long shot. Yeah, and part of that is just performance. I mean, Daisy Ridley is it's like she throws herself into it, and she she is designed as a character to be sort of an avatar for generations of fans. Like she she knows who Han Solo is, she knows what the Millennium Falcon is, she knows what a lightsaber is, she knows about the Jedi, and she's excited to encounter these mm-hmm. things. Like she's she's a fan avatar placed in the Star Wars world and getting excited by it. Whereas Luke was always, I mean, we think of him now as the the person who like went through all of his training and like became, gained his skills in a hard-won fashion. But as of the end of New Hope, he was barely past the point of being the the squeaky-voiced, sulking whiner. Oh, he, he's a teenager. Yeah, he's, a, he's an angry teenager. Yeah. And, and not nearly as capable as we see Ray. 
being at, also, the, at the beginning. his uncle is a total jerkwad. <laughs> I mean, I, going back and watching it again, yeah, his his uncle rides him pretty hard yeah. <laughs> for no really apparent reason. There's a reason he doesn't want his, he doesn't want to be like his father. Yeah, and you know what always works with teenagers is like, like brutally cracking down on them without any explanation whatsoever, like treating them like they should have no information about their own future or destiny or past because then they will just be obedient for their entire lives. Hey, that they, always works. You need, need somebody on the farm, no matter how many droids they get. Also, John Boyega is, I I am badly infected by John Boyega's like real life persona mm-hmm. and his incredible excitement over being in this series. That's me with Oscar Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think Oscar Isaac is a good example, too, of how we can put a little more credit to, to the performances than the script because there's not a lot to Poe Dameron on the page. He gets mm-hmm. a, a couple of good lines, but boy, Oscar Isaac's charisma uh, really sells that character and sells a character who probably could use a little more screen time. There's a whole mm-hmm. section of the film that was cut that's showing him escaping from Jakku where you could spend a little more time uh, with him. But, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the amount of time he has on the screen, he really makes a deep impression. He does. And I do. I think Boyega was almost cast. If you talk about his off-screen persona, I think he, he had to have been cast somewhat on his ability to say woo. Like He, like, <laughs> he does just, have the corniest lines he, and he sells them so I know. good. Like, he, like, that guy can really fly or whatever it is. Like. Yeah, given the sheer amount of, uh, of fury over uh, Jake Lloyd uh, being forced to say yippee as he's... Was that during the pod race or while he was blowing up ships accidentally i don't remember <laughs> but you know young anakin and his yippee that really offended people and throughout force awakens we have uh both poe and finn just like yeah yeehaw woohoo there's like there's a lot of just like excited shouting about oh, i just killed a bunch of dudes yay me woohoo debating whether i want to get into the whole gay subtext but probably not no totally Wait, what gay subtext. What well know about it. you know kind of talking about what boyega and isaac bring to their characters there's already online a, a lot a lot a lot of shipping of Finn and Poe because they do those two actors do bring a a, a bit of bromance to, to their relationship that could uh, easily tip over into something more especially my favorite part is when uh, Poe is like no you keep the jacket it looks good on you <laughs> <laughs> like I mean I, I love that that little slash pairing and I mean obviously that's almost certainly not intended, uh, at least in the script, but there's a little more to those performances where you can read that into it. It's not all surface level. The moment you mentioned, I thought about that moment on the tarmac where they're reunited mm-hmm. and how how much it's like Top Gun. Have like, people, mm-hmm. people talked about Top Gun as, in the subtext there as being related? I, I, I haven't seen that, but I can I can certainly oh. see, I mean, you know, just that shot where, where Poe kind of walks past Finn and the camera swirls and they kind of like tap each other and just Finn's eyes turn to hearts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know why it's so easy easy to read that that way is because this movie has something I don't think I've seen in a Star Wars movie and that's tenderness. Mm. And it's not, it's, I mean, it's very much there between the two of them at, at their reunion. Like there's no question of, you walked off and left me alone in the desert at night. It's like, 
it's awesome to see you and they hug and you see the same thing with with Finn and Ray like he keeps getting knocked out or knocked flat and when he, he when he wakes up or when he sits up or when he goes after her, her his first reaction is always are you okay and she responds to that initially with surprise and then with warmth because she's not used to people caring about her for me one of the most striking moments in the movie and I still want to write about this is Ray is just like sitting there having lunch and she hears BB-8 calling for help in I, whatever binary boop language mm-hmm. um, astromectroids speak. And she leaps up and tears ass over to save him from him or her. There's a debate online now to, to save BB-8 from like somebody who's got a net over it and is going to collect it for junk and defends it mm-hmm. and like shouts at the guy like and talks to BB-8 and treats BB-8 like an actual personality. That relationship between things Everything seems to all of the heroes seem to authentically have like human empathy and and care about each other, even if they're not actually human. Mm -hmm. And there's so much of that running throughout the film. I mean, if you look at the characters in uh, A New Hope, they're all very prickly with each other. They all have agendas. They all have uh, traumas. They all have like relationships with each other that are that are very like troubled. And it works perfectly for the movie. It's a great dynamic. It puts a lot of energy into the story. It puts a lot of conflict into the story. But there's not a whole lot of tenderness between characters. Even as the original trilogy goes on, even the big love triangle, there's not a a whole lot of tenderness in it. It's like it's competitive between Han and Luke. And then it kind of morphs into something else that's a little weird and that never really gets explored with Luke and Leia being uh, siblings. But you never get that sense of just emotional empathy and caring about each other in a serious way. So when you see it here, like for the first time between characters and between so many of the characters in Force Awakens, it does not surprise me that people would seize on it. I also think that it is there in part to encourage that kind of fan relationship, Mm -hmm. because I think fan relationships with uh, media these days, people more and more are looking for that kind of like closeness, that kind of intimacy, that kind of romantic tension between everything, including a random girl and a random droid Mm -hmm. or between two dudes who have spent like roughly three seconds of screen time together. But oh, those three seconds. They're pretty good three seconds. <laughs> there's some really good hugs in this movie too. Finn and Ray have some mm-hmm. especially good hugs. Like, like, I mean, there's a little bit of a, there's definitely some romantic tension there, just to, uh, more on his end than hers. But but it's also just like, these are people who care about each other, you know, uh, and it's it comes out. It's it's nice. I mean, I, 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 I care about these characters because they care about each other to some degree. Mm-hmm. It's very apparent that everyone who is involved with this movie, you know, from the creators to the performers is, is like super excited to be involved with this movie and the final product I think reflects being enamored of the Star Wars universe in in both kind of form and function. I mean yeah I guess if this thing does have a stamp it's enthusiasm Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of and it does that energy does help the film a great deal it's got a dexterity and a snap and a wit to it that is I think a little sharper than than Lucas if you're looking for you know I mean I talk about this film as being like you know a trip to the repair shop well there's there's some of the some of the tinkering you know improves on the originals um where it can and which is in terms of performances in terms of dialogue at least the way that the dialogue is you know in that and, and yeah that enthusiasm really does kind of propel the film forward as much as the plot but i really don't want to undersell the energy that that all of that tension and snappishness uh brings to the characters in uh, a new hope i mean it really does make the story 
the the humor of the relationship between uh, Han and Leia, the tension between Han and Leia, the frustration uh, that Luke has with Han, the the back and forth between Han and Chewie, all of these like character dynamics are such an important part of the story. And I like I don't think you should undersell them. No, I, I guess that maybe I don't I don't mean to. Maybe and maybe I guess that they they do in in that respect have different goals in mind. Well, speaking of that connection, uh, Keith, that kind of plays into what you wanted to talk about. I want to talk about the legacy and connections between the original trilogy and this and this film which which i almost feel like we've, we've already covered all this to some degree but so i, I guess maybe focus on, on on a couple of things one is we, we kind of agree that the death star or the star killer base in this is is more of a retread than it sh- that it should be and it's kind of hard to be that excited about a planet destroying space you know, space station the second time third time around really but i the one another place where i think it re, the the revisiting really worked well was uh jakku and sort of the the expanses of of waste and desert uh i mean it's another desert planet sure and 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 ray is in some ways another lowly person living on the, in a desert planet who works her way into the heart of the heart of the rebellion but the, sort of the loneliness of it is it kind of returns. Uh, you know, I love those shots of her dining alone in the ruins of the Adat. Uh, it, it, it harkens back to that shot we talked about loving in, in A New Hope of, of Luke staring, staring off in, into the, the twin sons and, you know, wondering what else is out there. When I think of the, I don't want to just bag on the prequels, but when I do think of the prequels, and most, mostly I think of like how every frame is filled with stuff. Everything is just packed with stuff flying around. And, and part of the romance of Star Wars is sort of the isolation of these characters, the way that the end, you know, Tatooine and here Jakku felt like the ends of the galaxy. The airlessness of the Death Star and Starkiller base are kind of are similar here, too, where, where, yeah, there's a lot of people running around, but it's also this empty, you know, sterile environment. I, I don't know. Th- those things to me, those connections that were made were, were really interesting. And it felt like a true continuation of the original trilogy, which I think that's part of what threw people off about the prequels. It's like we don't necessarily need to know where the story came from. We want to see where the story goes next. The fact that we've had these extra years, I think that kind of gives these these sequels an extra amount of power. And the passage of time is is very much a, a role as, as well. One thing I, I like about those uh, Jakku sequences you mentioned is how Rey is kind of surrounded by the relics of these stories mm-hmm. that she's finding out is, is true. You know, like there's there's at ats and there's. I, I'm sure someone knows the name of the Star Destroyer. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, no, wait. Well, the thing that she's mucking around in that yeah. has the giant engines looks like a, a half-buried Star Destroyer. Okay. But I think it it's really well thought out kind of placing her in this place that has been affected by these wars that have these star wars that have been going on for (laughs) years and years and that have sort of with the cyclical destruction of the sith and the uh the empire and now the first order you know is kind of faded into legends and just having her surrounded by the evidence of that of those legends is a really cool choice i think i don't know i go back and forth on this i i mean i think it does i think force Awakens does a really interesting job of thinking about what the future would be like for individual people. So, you know, Ray like living in this wreckage and like living with uh, her her vague knowledge of like these big events that went on way over her head and her her vague knowledge of oh, you know, you're a guy named Han Solo, I 
kind of thought you were a myth, but that's that's actually pretty cool. She's clearly heard of the Millennium Falcon, but has no idea what it looks like since it's been sitting in a junkyard like 15 feet away from where she goes every day. And she doesn't seem to have like made that connection. But at the same time, I don't know, there were just there were so many points throughout this film watching it the first time, whereas I thought that's cool, but I've seen it before. Or that's cool, but it's just a slightly bigger evocation of something that was cool in the first film. Or that's not cool because we so we've seen it before and it was better the first time. I I wanted more of this film to be the experience of the film itself and less the experience of all of the different ways that it echoed the past. Now, that said, when Han Solo and, and Chewbacca first show up and step onto the ship, that just had a real emotional impact on me. You know, them stepping back onto the, the deck of their ship and uh, Han Solo says, we're home. And, you know, you can feel all of the years between then and now, like as he's feeling them. I thought that was a cool moment. And then they discover Ray and Finn hiding in the same place that they <laughs> in the had. smugglers uh, yeah. compartment. There's a lot of like clever stuff like that that's like, ah, I see what you did there. Yeah. And I will say one part where that I think that sort of harms the movie is what's, you know, meant to be its biggest moment, which is Han Solo's death. Um because they go out on that bridge and, you know, mm-hmm. it, that that bridge is iconic. And even though it's not the same bridge, obviously, it's the same bridge. And as soon as Han Solo steps out on that bridge, it's like, okay, I know where this is going because they are playing with that iconography. It, obviously, the exact same events don't play out, but the, the portent there is uh, really... I think kind of damaging to that moment. I really disliked the the way the portent plays into that moment. And I I really hoped that Abrams was going to do something clever with it, that he was going to subvert what everyone was expecting to happen mm-hmm. instead of just echoing it. And I feel like the, the you know when Kylo Ren says to Han Solo, you know, I, I there's something I need to do. I don't know if I have the strength to do it. I know what needs to be done. I was like Okay, we're supposed to think that he's talking about coming back to the light, but he's actually talking about murdering him. So maybe he won't. And then he did. And for me, it was just it was like we've we've been here before. Mm -hmm. That was also like I I had some trouble with that because it was trying so hard to be cool by echoing the past. And to me, instead, it was like, yeah, but do something of your own maybe instead. I think it's also sort of a case of borrowing emotions from some some other source, because Mm -hmm. that's not if that for that scene to work, you know, we really have to recognize the power of that father-son relationship. It's something that George Lucas established very well and worked very hard at establishing, and so the payoff is you know, quite famous um, uh, between uh, Luke Skywalker and his father. But, but here, I think, it's, I think it's almost counting on our memory of that to fill in the gaps rather than really establishing. And you know, again, the film can only do so much, but it just didn't, that moment didn't quite work for me either. Yeah, it, what it reminds me of more than anything is in Abrams' Star Trek Into Darkness at the end when he d- decides to swap uh, swap things out so that Kirk dies saving the ship instead of Spock dies saving, dying saving the ship. And it's meant to be this big payoff moment for uh, Kirk's, you know, uh, character arc up until then of being like a self- 
protective asshole essentially but then he he sacrifices himself and that moment never worked for me it's playing on the emotion of how it originally happened in wrath of khan but for me that sequence the rebooted revived sequence doesn't stand on its own and doesn't work on its own because it's it's just trying to borrow emotion and i would kind of like abrams to stop doing that now please i think this works better in that it's not disastrous like it is in <laughs> star trek into darkness but uh, i think it's staged wonderfully and, and, and played really well by all by all the actors but yeah it, it felt like the obvious way that that was going to play out and and it does but i mean ultimately i guess my big question is is this more a remake or a reboot or a sequel does it really work as any of those things because i feel like in the same way abrams pulled all of these elements together and like shook them up like a, a bunch of dice and threw them on the table in a new configuration he's kind of playing with the whole idea of a sequel or a remake or a reboot and I don't know, I can already hear Scott thinking it doesn't matter. But for me, it's just, it, 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 there's constantly this sense of what exactly you're trying to do, Abrams. I don't know. I can fill in the line that you gave to Scott, which I'm not sure it matters. I think it's clearly a sequel in the sense that it is further along in the story. And, it's, and you know, it's a history repeating it. In the world, of, in the universe of the film, I think it's history repeating itself. Perhaps that plays is a little bit too... Um, safe for us as viewers of the film but i i, I know I, I don't think any in the other terms applies any of the other terms apply it's a sequel i would say it is a sequel to return of the jedi but it is a reboot of the original trilogy that works for me <laughs> um my topic was uh, expectations and teases because it seems to me that lucas had in mind that he wanted to do sequels he had in mind that he wanted this to be a series but fox didn't have any faith that there would be uh sequels to the point where they were perfectly willing to give him sequel rights there was actually a plan at one point uh, alan d foster wrote this novel splinter of the mind's eye which has uh luke and leia like going to this planet looking for this magic crystal that channels the force and Darth Vader is there and it's a very small planet bound story and they had Foster write it as a treatment for a super cheapy sequel they could do if Star Wars made like a little money and not a lot that was how little faith they had that this would be a bigger story but apart from Darth Vader being alive at the end of New Hope it really kind of wraps everything up you know oh the Empire had a super weapon we blew it up we blew it up with all of the uh, Empire people on it um, and we're pretty much done we could have left the end of A New Hope and people would have more or less felt that there was a complete story told. You cannot look at Force Awakens and feel that any kind of complete story has been told. It's not even really important that we blew up the super weapon because we know the, the Empire slash First Order just keeps building them over and over. This whole movie is a series of teases for franchise entries yet to come. You know, who is uh, Kylo Ren? Like where? Why did he have this conflict with his parents? Who are the Knights of Ren? How did he come to blows with uh, with Luke? Why did Luke go away? Who are Luke, who are Ray's parents? Uh, what's going to happen with Finn? Why is Finn different from the other stormtroopers? On and on and on. There's so many things being teased for the next movie. It doesn't feel like it's telling its own story. It just feels like a bunch of setup to me. And I'm curious how you guys navigated that. Yeah, I, I, it's a question for me too, just about commercial entertainment generally, but certainly for Star Wars about, we are so conscious, I guess, of the business of filmmaking, you know, so how, how do you, how do you 
deal with that about participating in that i guess is is understanding star wars the force awakens as setting the table for things to come or it's just it's a weird way to engage with a film i mean you really just want the film to be you know of a piece you know work of a piece or be, be a thing that that you respond to uh, and you move on to something else, um, but but here it's just we're we're so conscious of like okay this is this is now a new rebooted thing you know it has this relationship with the older films and this is what you know there's all this money invested in it and it's got to set up all these sequels and spinoffs and things like that. Remarkably, the film to the film's credit, it it, it navigates those things without whilst still being a satisfying film. I guess that's maybe the miracle of this movie is that it works. But but I'm still almost troubled by our participation in that kind of a commercial culture. It, it is that. There's a little bit of the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. where it's setting up everything else. But I think there's there's a precedent here with Empire Strikes Back, which raises a you know introduces a lot of mysteries, raises a lot of questions, ends on a on a really irresolute note and makes you want the next film in the series tomorrow rather than 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 you know theoretically sometime in the future i mean that i've left you know it also i think a little credit goes to abrams here which is he's he's done a lot from from alias on a lot of setting up mysteries and 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 doing these these puzzle box uh, as, uh, that don't always work out as well as they they ought to but you know hopefully it'll have more satisfying you know what happens next will be more satisfying than the last season of lost but um but nonetheless it it's not without precedent even within star wars well, actually, that, that's a good point too. Just the Abrams thing, the, the setting up is a good is a good point with regards to Lost because I think we think of Lost now as a Lindelof Cues series, mm-hmm. not a not an Abrams series. And Lindelof Cues really took the, took that material to you know maybe not a satisfactory ending, but something that really took off in people's imaginations in a way that it didn't at the beginning, as Abrams was sort of setting the table. And I think maybe we can. Uh, have hope or even faith that 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 when Ryan Johnson takes the reins, that uh, the table has been set for something really special and something new. Here's my thing, and uh, bringing up Lost reminds me of it, and it certainly applies here. Is you don't have to know every single thing. I, I, I understand that a lot of fans have that impulse where they need to like go and fi- figure out every mystery and you know all the different possibilities and the way that it could play out. I'm not that that kind of viewer. I'm not that kind of fan. I'm generally content to enjoy what's on screen and and leave it at that. Like I might do a little bit of backstory research if I'm really curious, but for the most part, I haven't done a whole lot of digging on Force Awakens or Star Wars because I'm not a fanatic about these movies. And I was able to enjoy it for what it was. I was able to enjoy it while it was playing and then kind of let it go. And I'll think about it again when the next movie comes out. I think kind of the way fan culture is right now, particularly online fan culture, which is something that the original trilogy did not have and the prequels only sort of had, is, you know, this idea that you have to know all the ways something could play out or you have to like notice this one thing that nobody noticed or in that is kind of exhausting to me, especially with something as big as involved as Star Wars. Like Star Wars is at the point now where I am just like comfortable kind of washing my hands of that deep, deep mythology that I know I will never, ever be able to catch up on unless I make that my <laughs> my sole uh, priority for the next couple years, which, sorry, guys, I'm not going to do. So I guess I that didn't bother me as much as you, Tasha, um, these sort of teases of what else might be happening on the periphery or down the line, because as a viewer, I personally am content to just let those things happen as they happen. 
Oh, I don't mean to say that I'm bothered by them. I, I, but I'm saying the film very overtly sets them up. And so, I mean, some of them I don't care about. Like, there's all of this theorizing that uh, maybe Finn is somehow the child of Mace Windu because they're basically only like two prominent black characters in the Star Wars franchise. So clearly he's got to be the son of Lando Calrissian or Mace Windu, which is a really racist observation because it assumes all black people are related. But in like, Star Wars, everyone's related. Though. But that's that. And, and that's just it. And that's one of the things that people hated about the prequels was this impulse to Anakin Skywalker built C-3PO. What? Like, why? Why is that necessary? Why is everybody related? There's so much theorizing right now that Rey has got to be Luke's daughter or maybe she's Han and Leia's daughter and they were separated at birth and blah, blah, blah. Everything that is done to make this universe smaller and make everybody related to each other makes me sad because what is exciting about Star Wars is that it's this huge universe full of endless possibilities. And like the the impulse to kind of roll it into a smaller and smaller and smaller ball where everything is just a string connected to other strings. I don't understand that impulse. What's that, what's that game, Katamari? <laughs> <laughs> oh my Katamari gosh. Friend. Oh, that's great. Um, well, let's let's consider this <laughs> existential question, I guess. Um, you know, don't you almost have to make it small, though? In, in the sense, like, why the hell is anybody fighting? Uh, it, because because the, if if the universe is so vast to accommodate all of these all of these planets and all of these different people, and and not uh, quite as many planets now. No, a little <laughs> less. But like, sick burn, but sick like, sick planetary burn. <laughs> But but I mean, you know, it would seem to be spacious enough to accommodate everyone, and well, there'd be no reason to fight, it, or even to even to try to maintain order to set to the vastness of the universe. I mean, it's apparently not uh, spacious enough. Like every planet that is being oppressed by a fascistic group of space Nazis with a planet-killing weapon <laughs> probably wants wants somebody to do something about it. You know, in theory, the the job of the Jedi was to go from like planets planetary system to planetary system fixing things because most people just cared about what was going on on their little world you know somebody's got to take care of the big problems that's what they were there for and now they're gone now it takes of like a roving band of ragtag heroes to fix things but uh, there's a difference between making things small enough to have a story in them and making them so small that it's just one story about like one bloodline <laughs> of people, like one family that happens to be spread out across planets. I like the mystery. I I don't think that Finn, like Finn basically says, I was taken from my, my parents when I was so small that I will never know who they were. I will never have a relationship with them. That is a tragedy. To me, it is not a tragedy that needs to be un- unraveled via him figuring out who they were and that he still can't have a relationship with them because he's an adult now. Like, I'm, I'm willing to let that mystery lie. The problem with Force Awakens is that it pushes these mysteries into your face with things like C-3PO's red arm. Nobody gives a crap about why C-3PO has a red arm mm-hmm. except C-3PO. I just assumed that had happened in a movie and I'd forgotten about it. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's a tie-in to a comic book that was supposed to come out in December, had production delays, won't come out until February. It's going to be February until we find out why he has a red arm. I didn't care during the movie and I don't care now. But the movie wants you to care about that. The movie wants you to care about all of these mysteries it's laying Actually, out. he's entirely red, but he's, he's been painting, painting gold <laughs> except for the red arm. They, they ran out of paint when they got the rest of the... 
I guess I'm just saying uh, those things are in there if you choose to care about them. But if you don't care about them, it's just really easy to gloss over. I just I miss the I miss the days where bringing up the fact that there was a mysterious force that unites the galaxy. What it it was allowed to be mysterious, and it wasn't something we had to explain with midichlorians. Tasha That's- Tasha said the M word. Also, those clouds, I hate them. Yell, 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 yell. Scott, you have a topic for us. Oh, I do. Um, I, I don't want to get... Uh, I do. Back back, uh, back at the Dissolve. Um, oh, he's got papers. The late lamented Dissolve. I, I would call it shameless self-promotion, but our site is dead. I, I, uh, I would like to note that Scott printed out his article on paper. In color. With, yeah, with images. Oh, yeah, I'm seeing a color. picture of J.J. Abrams Images here. that I embedded in that. I know. But look, the, the formatting's all messed up. Such nostalgia. Of the, of the, oh, it's terrible. In any case, um, when the trailer came out and people were... <laughs> it was, had reason to write about Star Wars again. Um, I wrote a piece uh, called Who Owns Star Wars? And it was kind of based on my, uh, around my general perspective on film, which is that film is is about the director and it's about, it's about you know, I mean, maybe a collaborative medium, but the person who uh, directs like that, that is the prevailing vision. And I think you can certainly say that, even if you dispute that point, uh, you can certainly say that with the Star Wars films as being the prevailing vision of George Lucas. So what is Star Wars without George Lucas and who who owns Star Wars? And my conclusion in the piece was that it's still George Lucas. Hmm. Um but but I kind of went through um different scenarios whether it's you know you know is it Disney? Is it the fans, you know, is it uh the Shinehart Wig Company. Is it the Shinehart Wig Company? <laughs> or exactly. Well, you, oh, you read my article. Um, and then I ultimately came to the conclusion that it was George Lucas. But I, I kind of wanted to go back to see and see whether, you know, this piece was just a bunch of nonsense or whether, um, you know, it reflected what the experience of The Force Awakens was actually like. So I came across this about Disney, and I kind of wanted to read a little bit of it. Is that okay? Should I, should I do that? Go for it, man. Okay. Uh, Disney is the caretaker of a lucrative property, and the right play is to be as conservative about its investment as possible, a play Disney is like, likely to embrace since it's a company notorious for its conservatism. The company is boxed in further by the expectations of fans who are deeply invested in, in some idealized Star Wars that probably isn't possible, and by the characters, worlds, and elaborate mythology Lucas devised, however much the new Star Wars sequels are seen as a corrective to the direction in which Lucas took the series and the prequels. Disney has the rights, it holds the purse strings, and its executives can hire and fire whoever they want, but they aren't nearly as powerful as they seem because the formula for success is so preordained. Disney is a passive custodian of its own property, with the leverage only to post the fences and hire the groundskeepers. A Disney Star Wars isn't going to look any different from a Fox Star Wars or Warner Brothers Star Wars. The parameters are rigid. That's not bad, right? <laughs> I'm right, aren't I? I mean, that's exactly that, that. Honestly, not to like boast, but I mean that really, honestly, was my experience of the film, which is that is that it cannot really escape George Lucas. And maybe you know, again, Ryan Johnson has that ability to 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 mix things up, and we have a new set of characters, etc. But but it it is a profoundly strange experience for me to see these films continue without George Lucas because they are so much his vision i mean what 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 is i guess there, i'm sure there's some kind of precedent for that but is there on this kind of a scale the closest thing you can come is the star trek universe continuing after the death of gene roddenberry because he was so heavily involved and he had such strong opinions about every aspect of every spin-off and development in that world and when he died you know the the world didn't die with him and it's i mean it's not the same because he isn't standing there on the 
sidelines complaining. You know, today, as we're taping this, uh, Lucas made a comment about how he sold Star Wars to white slavers, Mm, which uh, is he didn't finish the sentence in which he brought that up, which gives us uh, just any number of opportunities to interpret it however we want or don't want. So it's, it's a little hard to tell what to make of that. But, you know, it becomes a completely different scale. I've got another point of comparison, which is actually Disney itself, which has Mm. very much had to, uh, since Walt Disney's death, has had to try to carry on and honor the parameters and legacy and tone and and, uh, sort of creative pursuits that Disney created, whether it's the the theme parks or the the animated films or the live action films. There's very much a Disney tradition that's changed a lot over the years, but it can all be traced back to Walt Disney. I almost have to give up that idea of the director as the prevailing force, as being as a film being a reflection of of someone's vision and, and need to express something. Um, without that, you know, it becomes something else, and and uh, you know, it's not something that's unpleasurable exactly, uh, but it's it's weirdly impersonal. Well, I mean, what do you make of the fact that George Lucas? didn't direct so many of the star wars films i didn't i didn't really i felt like he was you know holding the strings i mean maybe perhaps irvin kershner did uh, executed certain aspects of empire the strikes back better than uh, lucas might have but uh but i i feel like those are george lucas films for... well one of the options and uh, that you kind of glossed over was that it belongs to the fans which is uh, probably not the answer you're looking for. This is not the answer you're looking for. <laughs> but um, this is not the answer. I'm but looking th- for. but the thing is, the fans have become the filmmakers. Like we've talked mm-hmm. about the enthusiasm that is evident from everyone involved in this, and these filmmakers and actors are playing in the sandbox that George Lucas built, and he will always be the creator of that sandbox. But you know they're building some pretty cool things in that sandbox that he has nothing to do with. But you don't feel, you think that there's more, I guess, room to, to do things that are surprising within those, within those parameters. Than... I, well, yeah, I, I think I, I'm very curious to see what Ryan Johnson does with, with this. I think JJ Abrams is maybe a little more on the conservative side as far as like setting up a new franchise. Like, I don't think he intended to reinvent the wheel here. I'm hoping and anticipating that that's maybe what uh, Johnson is going to do, or at least attempt to do. I guess I just, I don't, I don't understand why you're so upset about this, Scott. I don't see what the problem is here. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I'm not upset about it exactly. It's just not. I'm just trying to find a way to connect to these films as I would. That all know. sounds like extra textual stuff to me, though. Oh. I, I think circling back a little, I, th- I think Abrams <laughs> almost had to play this one safe, but. Anyone who else tries to play it as safe, it's going to be. It's not going to be as warmly received. I think. I think safe will be the new veering too wildly uh, with any sequels. If the next one doesn't show us something new, I think it's going to be uh, the rumblings we're hearing about this one being a little bit too much, too familiar, and too much like the predecessors are just going to get louder. The, you brought up the Marvel Cinematic Universe earlier, Keith, and I think that's a really telling point because we keep seeing MCU movies, uh, like they're they're bringing in all of these like creative, dynamic, individualistic, idiosyncratic directors, and then the resulting movies all kind of look alike, mm-hmm. regardless of whether those directors, I mean, Edgar Wright getting booted off, Ant-Man, voluntarily leaving Ant-Man, it's all sort of fuzzy as far as what we're allowed to know. 
But I will not trust the Ryan. I love Ryan Johnson. I will not trust the Ryan Johnson Star Wars until I see it because I have no idea whether he was is going to make it to the finish line. And I have no idea whether he's going to be given any kind of allowance to bring himself into this movie. I hope and pray that he will. But I just given the precedence that we've seen, I kind of find that hard to believe. Yeah, that's the MCU is, the, is a good example uh, and really ties into the force awakens for for me as uh i find most of those films to be quite satisfying but i think the whole thing is i think it's a boring enterprise <laughs> because because you don't have because it is it seems it's a producer's they're all a, it's a producer's movie these are all producers movies they're not they're not uh, director's movies we'll get sidetracked but I, I think mcu doesn't quite get quite enough credit for having variety within it i think avengers iron man those are i like those films those are sort of like when people think of the template at MCU, that's what they're thinking about. But the last Captain America movie had a different flavor. Guardians has a different, you know, a little the, bit. the Guardians corner of the, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is different from the Thor corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, you know, it, it, there is a little. Enough, enough. I think to to keep things interesting. I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of that, but that's a topic for another podcast. Well, I, I, well, and we are going to get that sort of splintering with the Star Wars universe, with the the comics and the whole like side set of the Rogue. Yeah, Gareth right. Edwards Rogue One yeah. coming up. Like even if and the... even like the video games and stuff. Like there's a whole this mythology can play out in so many different media than it. But than even the first sticking with the movies, the fact that they're going to like splinter off the main trilogy. I mean, Rogue One has the potential to be some of the outsider stories mm-hmm. that that we want even if this central trilogy just kind of goes in all right well now ryan johnson has to Im- slavishly imitate empire strikes back and uh then trevorrow has to slavishly imitate uh return of the jedi even if that's the direction that the trilogy goes all of these offshoots i think are a good sign that are going to give like other directors an opportunity to do something a little lower stakes, at least as far as low stakes within a billion dollar franchise possibly can be. Well, I look forward to beginning to dissect it all in detail in like a month or two, whenever the next uh, hype cycle starts. <laughs> <laughs> if they're already, they're already doing spoilers for Ryan Johnson's movie. I've already seen articles in EW. There's like, here's what we know about the next movie. It hasn't even started shooting yet, right? It comes out in January. 2017. Yeah. But well, we already know a few things. Spoiler alert. Okay, well, spoiler alert, we'll probably be back here doing the same thing for that movie, so. (laughs) (laughs) Comparing to Empire Strikes Back, right? Oh, let's hope not. All right, well, The Force Awakens is still playing pretty much everywhere, so if you want to revisit it, it shouldn't be hard to find. Star Wars A New Hope is available on DVD and Blu-ray in a ridiculous number of formats and editions, although it's surprisingly expensive in streaming formats, so you're probably better off with a hard copy of some sort. We'll be right back with an unusual year-end twist on our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Usually we use our recommendation segment to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. But by popular acclaim, and since we're recording this on New Year's Eve Eve, we figured it'd be a good chance to wrap up 2015 with our top five films of the year. Uh, Genevieve, you want to kick us off? Starting with number five and going to number one, what's your best of 2015 list look like? Okay, well, my number five, if I was making a top 10 or a top 15, it would probably be more in the, you know, 15 to six range. But, you know, for the purposes of this top five, and because it hasn't been mentioned a lot, in a lot of year-end talk, I wanted to kind of boop it up to number five, and that's Spy. 
I loved Spy. <laughs> it made me so happy, and it's so rare that like just a pure comedy is kind of in the conversation for the best of the year. And I just think that was a great comedy, great performances all the way around. Yeah, Spy number five. <laughs> wow, I'm excited for number four. Scott, I don't think you'll approve of my number four either, mm. but oh, I just loved Room. Okay. Room. I like Room. Uh, I uh, like it. Yeah, but you thought it was just okay. I well, thought it was great. I okay. had I had to like go in the bathroom and compose myself after seeing Room in the theater. I just was so moved by that, and especially by Brie Larson's performance, who she's quickly becoming kind of a can-do-no-wrong actor for me between that and short-term 12 a couple years ago. Just She blew me away. And, you know, the little kid was good, too. But uh, (laughs) that was really, that movie was about her for me. Number three is Creed. Kind of a late contender, but uh, it's actually kind of similar to The Force Awakens in that it's kind of a franchise that I really had no connection to and a sport that I really had no connection to. I can't really name another boxing movie that I really felt this sort of emotional connection to and kind of understanding of the beauty of the sport. And I think that Ryan Coogler's direction is just a huge, huge part of why that comes across so strongly. My top two are nothing that interesting. I'm sure it's on all of your guys' list too, but uh, Mad Max Fury Road is number two <laughs> and number one, Inside Out. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> all right. Scout, we, uh, you know, everybody listening to this podcast should already know what your top yeah. five list looks like because they're all film spotting fans, but uh, give us the quickie rundown. No, I, yeah, I, exactly. This, um, I did the two part marathon on film spotting so i'm really just going to tell you what the top five is so we can move on to someone who hasn't voiced their top five list uh my number five is uh, the assassin the uh, hosha shen film uh is beautiful wuxia deconstruction uh brooklyn uh, is my number four i just you know as i said on the show it's sort of a film that my my head was trying to push out of my top five list but heart said heart said no keep it on uh carol uh, which i just saw again uh, last night um exquisite uh phoenix says the the you know, I think one of the all-time great movie endings, uh, Christian Petzold, uh, his sort of riff on Vertigo, it's wonderful. Uh, and, the, and The Look of Silence, which has been kind of my lock um, for about a year and a half as number one. <laughs> um, uh, that's Joshua Oppenheimer's uh, companion piece to um, The Act of Killing. All right. Keith, what do you have for us? Uh, at number five, uh, Star Wars did not crack my top five, uh, but a different kind of uh, science fiction film did, Ex Machina, which is more in tradition mm-hmm. of the early 70s science fiction films where it's taking sort of concerns we have now about artificial intelligence and isolation and, and, and the way you know our way we interact with technology and kind of takes them to sort of uh, uh, some fairly nightmarish places. Uh, also co-starring Oscar Isaac and Donald Gleason uh, from Force Awakens and uh, Alicia Vikander, who's been sort of a big coming out year for her number four i have uh, phoenix which scott just touched on and and uh, i cannot recommend highly enough number three uh mad max fury road weird that that is oh mad max fury road of course it's in the top three it's right. a, it's, <laughs> but I mean, who saw that coming i was i was i had high hopes but not sort of like you did you dropped the five star i know i know but i mean before i before i saw it before i saw it though oh, yeah. i was like yeah, yeah it's like i had high hopes for it as a george miller sequel to mad max but who knew it would be such a Beautifully staged, exquisitely shot, and, and, and thematically rich film. Uh, I loved it. Uh, number two, Inside Out. I'm with you, Jenny. That's an, that's an all timer. It's one of Pixar's best films. Uh, a film I, I, I keep going back to because I have a four year old, but also a film I would probably return to anyway. It's just, just a lot going on and, and so 
beautiful to look at and entertaining. And number one, I have Carol. Uh, Carol is my movie of the year. Uh, see it in the theater if you can. It is such a, an immersive experience from Carter Burwell's score to the the uh, uh, production design to, to the way Todd Haynes plays with the way people sit in a room together and the, the interiors or uh, are, are, uh, the way everything's set up and, and shot. It's, 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 it is exquisite i saw a truly uh, crummy screener of of, of that <laughs> and uh seeing it in the theater was a was a big i've watched revolution. that truly crummy screener twice and i still like carol quite a lot it's definitely solidly in my top 10 but maybe if i'd seen it in the theater it would have cracked the top i five. have been holding off on watching that crummy screener because i've been told it's crummy and i'm going to finally see that uh film in a theater tomorrow what about you tasha what is your top five? well it's funny you should ask i mean i'm looking forward to seeing carol this this entire year has an asterisk for me um between the dissolving of the dissolve and a lot of stuff that went on with my family this year. I lost more than I lost about two months of this year to being in hospitals. So I feel like my my entire top five has an, an asterisk. And that asterisk reads, I have not yet seen Carol or Clouds of Sils Maria or Brooklyn or Look of Silence. All of these films are potential listers for me. I would feel very unprofessional about uh, doing a top 10 list this year for publication, which is why I didn't. But informally, I'm really happy with my top five, which are all very much visually striking movies where the filmmaking became such an integral part of telling the story. And every single one of these, I'm really excited about how camera movement and editing and camera placement and just the way stories are told in visual, the visual format became part of how character is revealed, how character is told. So uh, just briefly, I'm again on the Scott Tobias does not approve tip. I've got The Revenant at number five. <laughs> that I, I know how everybody feels about the, the narrative in and of itself, the revenge drama, the ridiculous I'm giving it up to God ending, and I don't care. Visually speaking, uh, in terms of ambition, in terms of craft, in terms of the camera used, I really love this movie. And Tom Hardy would get my performance of the year vote. Um, Number four, Mad Max Fury Road. I don't think I need to convince anybody here on that or why that was. Uh, Number three, Son of Saul, a Mm. Hungarian Holocaust drama by Laszlo Nemes ridiculously confident and ambitious and exciting storytelling. I am so tired of Holocaust dramas. This film completely revived the idea of Holocaust storytelling as far as I was concerned. Number two, Victoria. Uh, Sebastian Shipper's two hour, 20 minute, I think, single take heist movie. Love the central character. Love the, uh, like the story. Love the camera work. Love how it all comes together. Um, It was just, it was one of the most visceral experiences I had in the theater this year. And number one, probably surprising to no one, is Inside Out. So ambitious, so brave, so emotional, so sweet, but also just funny as hell. Uh, well, Tasha, as much as you, you were worried that I would dispute your list, I do like the motive of your list. I like, I like the idea of, of movies that use the tools of the medium in a very striking, exciting way as being the impetus for, for making your top five. That's, All right. I'm behind that. Well, I will add a uh, two asterisks under my original asterisk, and those two asterisks will say, Scott Tobias partially approves of my motive. That's good enough. <laughs> it's all we all hope for. It's all we can aspire to, really. All right, guys, that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. But before closing the book on this week's episode, let's reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which comes out in two parts on January 19 and 21. Scott, what's on tap? You know, Andrew Hayes' superb drama, 45 Years, is slowly making its way around the country. I saw it 
at TIFF and uh, was blown away by it. I, again, it's one of those things I don't know how it didn't make my top 10 list, but uh, uh, it certainly deserves to be there. Um, you know, Given the strength of its performances uh, by Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtenay as a well-established couple uh, with an unsettled issue from their past, we thought it would be a good time to revisit another film about a long-married couple under duress, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, this was Mike Nichols' debut feature, based on the Edward Albee play, shot by the late Haskell Wexler, and it stars Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Uh, it won five Oscars, including one for Taylor, and is currently available for rental on several streaming services if you want to catch up. I think it's on YouTube and Google Play, of all places. <laughs> but uh, I just want to try to say Google Play in the most contemptuous way possible. But uh, if you have not seen it, it is a uh, well. I mean, it's a great play for one, but uh, it's a striking debut uh, by Nichols. It might be his best film. You know what? Might wow. be. It's close. Uh, certainly top three. And uh, and 45 years is, uh, you know, it, it's going to be finding its way out. I think a little bit slowly, but it, but it, here in Chicago, I think it's showing up uh, maybe right when this podcast drops. But uh, another great film. And I think there's going to be some good discussion about how, uh, you know, married couples or long married couples, how their relationships uh, continue to be lively, I should say. <laughs> Late <laughs> decades into uh, their partnership, so uh, looking forward to that. Are you yeah. saying listen with someone you love, or someone you hate, or someone you love to hate, or someone you love who hates you? Yeah, if you think that uh, Scott and I argue like old marrieds, wait till you see who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> <laughs> we can only aspire to that level of uh, of venom oh, in Martha. our affection. Oh, Martha! Oh, George! Oh. All right. Well, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of A New Hope, The Force Awakens, and anything else Star Wars or otherwise film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. In the meantime, where can we find everyone these days? You can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias and at... uh a number of publications, including uh, NPR Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Oscilloscopes Musings. Um, what about you, Keith? Where are we finding you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000, and mostly behind the scenes, occasionally in front of the scenes uh, at Uproxx. I hope to write more in 2016 than I have so far, but I've been busy doing other things. Genevieve, how about you? Uh, right now, you can find me editing the Next Picture Show podcast and... <laughs> hopefully doing some other things in the future. And I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And of course, Tasha, our glorious host, where can we find you? Uh, you can find my writing pretty much exclusively these days at The Verge. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for doing double duty this uh, week, both in front of and behind the mic. I'm not sure if that works, but she produces the show and puts a lot of extra work into it. Thanks also to our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time and keep this in mind. I'm loud and I'm vulgar and I wear the pants in the house because somebody's got to, but I am not a monster. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs>